Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club's virtual program. My name is Soledad O'Brien, and I am going to be your moderator today. Our big thanks to the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting today's Good Lit event. It is my tremendous pleasure to introduce you all to Amanda Tyler. She is the Shannon Cecil Turner Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley Law School. Also co-author, along with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of Justice, Justice Thou Shalt Pursue, a life's work fighting for a more perfect union. Professor Tyler teaches and writes about the Supreme Court, the federal courts, constitutional law, and civil procedure. Last year, she received the law school's Rudder Award for teaching distinction. Professor Tyler clerked for Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and their book, Justice, Justice, Thou Shalt Pursue, is an outgrowth of Justice Ginsburg's visit to UC Berkeley in 2019. Tyler interviewed her about her life. Building on that interview, the book is a compilation of materials exploring Justice Ginsburg's life and her lasting legacy. We will hear more about her work to end gender discrimination, fighting for equality, and protecting the U.S. Constitution. A quick reminder to our viewers, if you have a a question for Professor Tyler, please submit that question into the chat. Professor Tyler, what a pleasure to talk to you about your book. And I'm going to begin by asking you kind of where it all started, not the conversation, which I mentioned, we'll get to that in just a moment, but really the clerking that you did with Justice Ginsburg in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, How would you describe your relationship at that time? Lots of uh, people who have an opportunity to uh, clerk for a judge wouldn't necessarily say it's close or friendly. (laughs) How would you describe it? That's interesting because uh, I had two absolutely exceptional clerkship experiences. And in both cases, I feel as though I I was very lucky to have bosses who became lifelong mentors and also dear friends. Um, and, And that's not to say that the clerkships in both cases, especially at the Supreme Court, were not intense did not involve considerable hard work. Uh, Justice Ginsburg, uh, many people may know, but certainly if you worked for her, you knew was one of the hardest working individuals ever to live. She had an extraordinary work ethic and she expected the same of her clerks. She had exacting standards and held, held us up to those standards, but she never asked more of us than she asked of herself. And I think that is a really special thing about her leadership and her mentorship because she sort of carried you along with her. And in effect, you wanted to prove yourself to her and you wanted to rise to your very best. I've analogized working for her to playing on, I'm big on sports analogies. It's like playing on a sports team with Michael Jordan or to borrow from soccer, my sport, Megan Rapinoe. (laughs) Um, She just really pushed you to rise to be your best. But she also very much invested in her clerks and she did it in real time. It wasn't something that came necessarily just later. So for example, when we would go back and forth with her, one of the main things that clerks do is work with justices in writing opinions. And so we would give her a draft opinion And we would give it to her in triple spaced pages and it would come back completely covered in ink, just completely covered in ink. And this becomes a theme because (laughs) this happened again with the book 20 years later. Um, We can get we can get to that in a bit. But she would then sit down with you and she would I, I remember once going to her house and sitting at the dining room table next to her and going line by line. She would explain why she wanted to make the changes she was making. And that's a really significant thing because it shows that she wasn't just extracting work from us. She was also investing in us and mentoring us in real time. And that is something that she kept doing all the the years after. But she also made it fun. I do want to emphasize that because, among other things, she took us to Gilbert and Sullivan. 
She took us to the opera. She took us for private curated tours of the National Gallery that she arranged for us, uh, along with the full chamber staff. And the opera in particular, you know, she's famous for having loved the opera. It, 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 it was really something. We went. I remember we went to see Tosca. And the day before, she brought in the clerks, and we sat around her round table, and she described to us the story of Tosca. And if you've seen it, you know there's a scene at the end where she's crawling along the stage. And the justice actually acted that out for us. So um, that is a really favorite memory because it's a window into how much she loved opera and also how there was this really fun side to her and to the clerkship. And, and it was always about not just the work. It was about a, a larger good life, if you will. What was it like? interviewing with her in order to get that clerkship? What do you remember from it? I remember being incredibly nervous, incredibly <laughs> nervous. So, um, and, and my nerves were only not as bad as they would have been because she invited me to interview in the middle of my winter final exams of my third year of law school. And so I had my federal courts exam, I can't remember because it's such a blur, either the day before or the day after the interview. In, in any case, I had two things I was really nervous about. And I now teach the course in federal courts. So that gives you an idea of how important the class was to me even then. Uh, but I, I, I flew down from Boston and I remember going in and being just incredibly nervous because this is someone, this is the winter of 1997-98. She had uh, written the VMI decision. We'll probably talk about that. One of her biggest, most important decisions the prior year. And I had been studying that case and her opinion, as well as all of her advocacy in the 1970s in law school. So she was already something of a personal hero to me. So then to go down and interview for the opportunity to work for her was just incredible. But what I remember most of all are, are two things about that experience. The first is when I went into her office after having talked to her clerks who were amazing and, and that whole group of clerks remained good friends to me, uh, I went in and she immediately put me at ease. And this is something that I think a lot of people may not know about her, but there was no ego. She was just incredibly kind. She, she, um, you know, she didn't try to fill up the room. She was welcoming and gracious and put people at ease very quickly and that was something that was really special about her and that also made you want to be around her more. The other thing I remember about the interview, most of it's a blur. Um, to my great fortune, she offered me a clerkship at the end of the interview. And I said yes as fast as possible before she could take it back. Um, but I remember when I went to the airport to fly home, I called my grandparents. And neither of my grandparents had gone to college. I was very, very close with them. And I explained to them that I I was very proud. I'd just been invited to, to clerk for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And two questions followed. My grandfather first said, what is a clerkship? Is that a real lawyer job? He was very concerned about this. And then my grandmother said, who's Justice Ginsburg? She didn't know who Ruth Bader Ginsburg was. And so I explained to her that she was this woman who had done so much to open up opportunities, particularly for women in this country, and that she'd really changed the landscape for women in this country. And my grandmother said, my gosh, she sounds incredible. I'm so proud that you will work for her. And I went home and I wrote the justice a letter and I said how pleased I was and how honored I was to be invited to be her clerk. And I relayed the story of telling my grandparents she wrote me back in turn and included a letter within the letter for my grandmother, which I sent on to my grandmother, and she had it framed and hung it in a very prominent place on her living room wall for the rest of her life. So that's also a window into the justice's kindness. That didn't take very long for her, but of course, I mean, she was a Supreme Court justice. Her time is very valuable, but it was a little gesture that had a really major impact on someone. Would you describe your yourself or the two of you as as friends? Because like, you tell a very funny story about when she found out that you were dating somebody particularly significant. <laughs> tell that story. Yes. Yeah, so um, shortly after I finished my clerkship with her, I uh, I remained very close with her assistants, who were two extraordinary women, Linda and Kathy. And then uh, I became over the years very close with her follow on assistants, who replaced them when they retired. 
But I was constantly talking with Linda and Kathy, and I let slip in a conversation that I had met somebody. And I said, I I think this one's special. (laughs) And it wasn't five minutes after I was speaking with one of them that my phone rang and the justice called and said, I understand that there's someone special in your life. Uh, Marty and I would like to meet him. And so what are you doing on Tuesday? (laughs) And uh, so we we went to dinner and actually it, it turns out it was one of the first times that she had been out in public after treatment for colorectal cancer after all of her treatments had concluded. And so the evening, the four of us actually got written up in the society page of the Washington Post, which is always funny because it said Justice and Marty Ginsburg and friends. And we were very (laughs) happy to be and friends. Um, but But the best part is the next morning I got to work and the phone rang and it was the justice would like to speak with you. And she got on and she made very clear that this one got a big thumbs up from her and Marty. <laughs> and of course, I wouldn't be telling the story if I hadn't gone on to marry this individual and, and have a family with him. Um, but it, it, it was really special because it's another window into how she looked out for her clerks. She cared about us. Um, it was a very special blessing. I'll tell you, it counted for a great deal in my, in my view, um, in no large measure because I had had the privilege in the prior year of watching her and Marty's marriage and thinking, I want that because it was truly a love affair for the ages. Talk to me a little bit about Marty. Um, He was a very special individual, but also a very special person to her. Talk about their relationship. And I don't know of a better word to use than devotion, because every story centers around his devotion to her. Yes, I, I think that's a great word to describe it. Uh, the word that I often use is partnership in the truest sense of the word. They they met in college. She tells the story of it in the book. It's, it's a wonderful story. Then they went to law school together. They were a year apart. They faced tremendous adversity while they were in law school. Marty uh, had cancer. It was not at all clear he would live for uh, from the cancer, live through the cancer. They had a 14-year-old daughter when when she started law school, when the justice started law school. And yet somehow, you know, they got through all of it. And she talks a lot about this in the book. And she says, you know, once we got through that, we just believed we could get through anything. We took it one day at a time, but we had this confidence that no matter what came our way, we would prevail. And what then emerges and what you see both in her description in the book, but also what those of us who knew them came to see is that there was this devotion. He was, she liked to say, her biggest booster. And and the history really bears that out. This is someone who was instrumental in raising her profile as a candidate for the Supreme Court. He worked very hard to get President Clinton to consider her because he believed in her. And he knew that she had these great talents and, and these great contributions to make. But he was also devoted to her behind the scenes as well. And and she talks about this in the book. He was devoted to sharing the parenting. And this is a really important thing because when you think about when she was coming up, how society did not support working women at all. Um, you know, we, we, those of us who are working mothers today, we, we complain that society isn't doing enough, but we have so much more than she had. And here in her husband, she had somebody who was fully supportive of her career from the beginning, and who wanted to be an equal parent. And she cites that as a major explanation for why she was able to do everything. But he was also just devoted in in all the little ways, too. I, I think about the year when I clerked for her. She had cancer. It was her first bout with cancer. And he would come and he would sit in her office and he would nag her until she would agree to come home because he thought she was working too late and she needed to rest he made special meals to help her keep her weight up. I remember the first time uh, with my new husband when they came to dinner, he showed up, first of all, with baguettes under his arm because he said that no bakery could make a decent baguette. He was a phenomenal baker and chef. But he also, I loved this, he showed up with a flask in his pocket of Campari because her drink was Campari and soda, and nobody ever had Campari in their bars, at, at, in their homes or at events. So everywhere they went, he brought a flask of Campari to make sure that his sweetheart could have her signature drink. 
And that, again, goes back to your word of, de of devotion. And it, it went both ways. Uh, the other thing and the final thing I'll say is when she and I were working on the book this past summer and I sent her a draft of the introduction, I had discussion of Marty in there because he was such a large figure in, in her life and in the story of all that she accomplished. But she wanted more. She wanted more Marty. And so that shows you a window into the devotion that went both directions. I was going to ask you um, about the importance of Marty to a lot of the groundbreaking work that she did, because often the stories are around how much they loved each other. But he was also instrumental in her work as well. And that I think wanting him in the book even more was an indication of it was beyond just I love him. He loves me. We're devoted. He was essential. I think that's right. Uh, a big part of it, it was not even just Marty, but his whole extended family. She talked in both her Rose Garden ceremony when she was nominated to the court and in her testimony before the Senate Judiciary Committee at her confirmation hearings. She talked about how Marty unreservedly supported her from day one, but also how her in-laws did as well. And I think that was a big part of, of the story of how she was able to do everything and to do it in the, in the days and years when she was coming along and society was not supportive of women in the workforce and certainly women in the legal profession. But Marty, he was also, it's not just that he helped with the parenting. It's not just that he helped support her um, and was, you know, cheering for her and, and promoting her career. It was also that he was instrumental actually in launching her career as an advocate for gender equality. And what I mean by that is, and, and many people know this story if they've seen the movie On the Basis of Sex. We talk about it in the book and we've included portions of, of the brief from this case. He picked out a case. He was a great tax lawyer. And, and this is really important to highlight. He was a huge deal in his own right. And like his wife, did not carry a big ego. So he was not threatened by her success. Um, he liked to joke that he was jealous a little bit. He would have, he, she had the job that, that he, he would have loved to have, but, but I never sensed that actually for, for real. And uh, going all the way back, he was reading the tax court review sheets and, or the tax court notes that would come out. And he saw a reference to a case that involved gender discrimination, the, the Moritz case, which is the movie, uh, which is the case at the center of the movie on the basis of sex. And he, he hands her the tax court sheets. And as she tells it, and as he told it, she says, I don't do tax cases and sort of, you know, said, Oh, that's beneath me. And he said, look at this one. And within moments, she said, let's take it. And they called Mr. Moritz and said, we'd like to handle your case for free. It was over a tax deduction that he is a never married man did not qualify for. But if he'd been a never married woman, he would have received for a, a caregiver dedu deduction to take care of his mother. And they took that case, they litiga litigated it together, excuse me. And we have in the book, we have the brief that they filed, which is the very first brief that she ever filed in a gender discrimination case. And it lays out the, the framework for what she's going to do over the course of the next decade. But Marty was a big part of that. And, and he, he was actively involved in that case. And then he stepped to the side and, and she took it from there. I mentioned that the book arises out of her visit in 2019 to UC Berkeley. So tell me a little bit about what brought her to UC Berkeley and what made you want to turn your conversation into a, a book that you would co-author with her. Yeah, so she came to Berkeley to honor a woman named Herma Hill Kay. And Herma Hill Kay had been the second woman put on the uh, appointed to the Berkeley Law Faculty and our first woman dean. Their friendship went back to the early 1970s when they met at a conference and they wound up deciding with a third co-author, a man named Kenneth Davidson, to write what would become the very first casebook on sex discrimination and the law. So in that casebook, they effectively founded this field of gender discrimination in the law. And so Herma and the justice, I call her Herma because she was my colleague, but I call Justice Ginsburg the justice, uh, they remained lifelong friends and, and the closest and best of friends. Herma tragically passed away in 2017 and colleagues of mine endowed uh, a lecture in Herma's honor. 
And there's no one who would have been better to give that first lecture than Justice Ginsburg. So I invited her to come. And to my delight, but not my surprise, she said, yes, absolutely. And what's interesting about it is that originally she was supposed to come in early 2019, but because doctors discovered lung cancer and she had to have surgery for that, we had to postpone. And she resisted postponing. It was so important to her to come and honor Herma that I really uh, had to entrust her family and and others to prevail on her that she really needed to not travel. And I, and she only relented when her doctors said, no, you, you, you cannot travel. So at that point, we postponed, but she immediately rescheduled for a new date. And she came in October of 2019 to the event to honor Herma. And I will share that she was not at full steam. She was still undergoing treatment, um, and in this case now back in treatment for pancreatic cancer. And so it was a struggle for her to come. But it was really important to her to come and honor Herma. And the book arises out of that because in the lead up to her visit, we learned that the University of California Press was considering publishing Herma's last book, which is a book called Paving the Way, America's First Women Law Professors. As the title uh, reveals, it's a book that chronicles the stories of the very first women academics in the law, women who came before Herma Hill Kay and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Justice Ginsburg had written the introduction to that book, and yet it still had not published. And several publishers we knew had turned it down. So Justice Ginsburg got the idea that it might be fun for us to take our conversation, to plan it very carefully, and turn it into a book but we would only offer it to UC Press saying that we wanted them to take Herma's book too and we wanted the books to be released together. And as you can see over my shoulder, I have both of them side by side very happily. Both came out this spring together. And uh, what I love about that story is that it reveals how Justice Ginsburg liked to use her position to lift up other voices, which I think is a really important thing for people to do, women in particular. And she liked to use her position to celebrate the, the women who came before her, which is something she did throughout her career to try and elevate the profiles of the women who paved the way for her. And the final thing that I love about this is that you have two women who wrote this case book together in, 19, in the early 1970s, and they were still writing together even now. And I think that's very special. Yeah, it's amazing. When it came to the book the two of you co-authored, what were the conversations about the approach? Um, because I am confident that you were truly co-authors uh, and really partners in how to think about it and how to um, even how to promote it and how to frame it. Talk to me a little bit about those conversations. She uh, and I went back and forth extensively before the event on the conversation that we were going to have to plan a conversation that would cover the arc of her life. So that's the first component to it. That's where we started. We wanted to cover her life from her childhood through her time on the Supreme Court. We definitely, I know I did and I know she did, we wanted to talk a lot about her family and about Marty. And Marty looms very large in our conversation then what we did is we had just an extensive series of back and forth talking about what materials could we bring in that would complement the conversation and that would also create um, a collection that would give the reader mostly overwhelmingly in her own words an idea of what was important to the justice, what her life's work had entailed, and what she thought about in terms of her contributions. And she wouldn't use the word, but I would use the word her legacy. Mm. I was going to ask that and then and I'm going to interrupt you and then have you continue on with your answer. Did you feel like she had already had several bouts of cancer? She was elderly by the time you were having this conversation. Did it feel like the legacy interview? That this is, I want to make sure we're getting everything in because we're assessing my life um, as we get closer to obviously, uh, you know, her, her, her ultimate death. That's hard to answer. And here's why. Um, it was hard for me just being honest to accept that when my head told me that this is someone who has pancreatic cancer again, which is a terrible cancer, 
This is someone who's been through so much. I knew that she was facing formidable medical challenges, especially once we got to summer. I knew that she would have been in the hospital and that things were not going well. And yet my heart told me she was going to live forever. And I, I can't explain it. You know, I'm, I try most of the time to be a logical person, but she had endured so much. I had seen up front and close just how extraordinary her, her resilience was and her perseverance was and her dedication to being a public servant and to doing her part to try and make a contribution that I just never could quite grasp the idea that the end was near. And so even though in the days leading up to the news, the tragic news when it came, I suspected for various reasons that something had taken a very wrong turn, I was still shocked when the news came. And um, it was very, very hard to take. When you, when I say that, then hopefully you can understand that when I was working with her, although I was thinking about this in some respects of let's paint a picture of your life, let's make sure that we give readers an idea of what mattered to you, what you fought about, what work you want to, to inspire people to keep doing. I was never thinking that I would be here talking with you without her that she would not be with us. It just, I, again, I know this makes no sense, but uh, given all the circumstances and all that even the public knew, but I just, I thought she was superhuman. And I, I just didn't conceive of a time when she wouldn't be here. What was the process like to work together? Cause she was very meticulous and clearly a hard worker. Um, how, how did that back and forth go? Yes, she was, as I, as I said, she was an incredibly hard worker. Her work ethic was second to none and her meticulous nature was second to none. She had the highest standards and she was so careful. So it was like being her law clerk again. And some people, you know, apropos of your comment earlier, some people might cringe at that. For me, it was like, this is great. I, I had a fabulous clerkship with her. I loved working with her. She's, she's brilliant. She was inspiring. I love the subject matter of the book. Obviously, it was very special to me. So uh, it was just, it was a joy to be able to work with her. And it was such a privilege to say to her, okay, Justice, I think we should give some opinions. Because one thing that I want to convey about the book that was a very conscious decision on our part is that we wanted to create a book that a non-lawyer could pick up and read in its entirety and really get the full sense of who she was and what mattered to her and, and what work was central to her identity. We non-lawyers truly appreciate that, by the way. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. I'm glad I've heard from many people that they think we've succeeded in that regard. And that makes me so happy because I wanted people who were not trained lawyers to know more about her. And in, that com in those conversations, it became, okay, let's do a portion on your advocacy. And I said, you know, how about including the Moritz brief? Because that's never been published. And that's really historically significant. And I knew it was special to her because it was with Marty. And then, you know, we talked about, okay, what else should we include? What were your favorite arguments? And so we included portions of her favorite arguments before the Supreme Court. She had six all told, and she won five. And that bears highlighting because that's an extraordinary batting average for someone before the Supreme Court. Um, but she had her favorites. And so those are in there and they're in there for different reasons. And, and we talk about that and we can certainly talk more about that. But then for me, what I would say the really most fun part of all of this was to say, all right, boss, you've been a judge for 40 years, 27 years on the Supreme Court. She had written all told over 1100 opinions over those 40 years. What are your very favorites? And then talking with her and having a back and forth. And what was fun about that and what gives you a window into how involved she was is there were times when I would go back to her and I'd say, you know, I, I called her justice or boss. I would say, you know, boss, I really like your opinion in X. I think maybe we should include that. And she said, no, no, those are the four. So she was very thoughtful about the four that she included, and each was in there for a different reason. And as I'm sure we'll discuss, most of them are dissents. I was going to say three of the four are dissents. So talk about some of those cases. What made them her favorite? Give us some insight into that. 
So this is someone who did not like to lose. <laughs> and I think that's, that's okay. You know, right. It's okay to say you don't like to lose. And she, when she wrote dissents, particularly the ones that she chose to include here, she felt very strongly that the court had erred. And in these three in particular, she thought that the court had erred, as she said in her Shelby County bench statement, egregiously. And I think she chose them because, and here's where actually I'll step out of my position and, and try to walk in her shoes, although I would never speak for her. But I, I think she knew that this was likely to be her last work. And there are conversations we had where she conveyed that. And when I put that together with the choices that she made, I think that the choice of, of the choices of the dissents was her way of saying to all of us that these are areas where she wants people to keep up the fights that she waged. And so in particular, in the context of voting rights, as I mentioned, Shelby County is in there. And, and that is, in my view, a dissent for the ages, just a really extraordinary tour de force that just decimates the majority opinion and points out how crucially important having a rigorous infrastructure in place to protect voting rights is. In that case, she dissented, uh, for those who don't know, she dissented to the Supreme Court effectively gutting the preclearance requirements that stopped laws, voting changing, voting changes going into effect in so-called covered jurisdictions that had histories of voting discrimination based on race. And now those, that part of the Voting Rights Act is no longer in operation. And she writes a dissent explaining all the reasons why this is profoundly misguided. And I think this is something we're seeing play out in real life right now. But there are also dissents in gender discrimination case, cases, including a reproductive rights case. And this was also an area where she thought the court was, if anything, moving backward. And she talked time and again about how important reproductive freedom was to women's ability to control their own destinies. And so I think by including these, again, it was her way of saying to the reader, uh, this is work that is ongoing and I need you to join me because I'm not going to be here forever. Was it more than that? Do you think it was predictive, right? Predicting in a way, not just here's what I didn't finish, but here's where we may be going. I mean, if you look at what's happened in Georgia for voter restrictions, I mean, I think many people have figured out in great depth, uh, the Voting Rights Act, right? Because we talk about it now yes. all the time and and the section that was um, killed by the Supreme Court. So, you know, did, did you get the sense that it was not just, here's what I had unfinished, but I believe this is coming back. This This is not going away for the rest of you who are carrying on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when she when she passed away, she knew that there were major voting rights cases coming to the court. They'd already granted one for this term, case out of Arizona that was another covered jurisdiction like Georgia. So a set of laws, one of which failed previously, the preclearance uh, procedure. So she was aware of all the voting rights changes and voting laws changes uh, that had taken place. I think she very much appreciated that this was still a, a huge issue. And I think the same can be said about the work that remains to be done on gender rights and, and reproductive justice. Uh, these were issues that, that were extremely timely then. If anything, they've only become more so in the time since she passed away. Talk to me a little bit about um, gender discrimination. What, what cases specifically do you think she was highlighting as, hey, focus on this. This is work that still needs to be done. Well, one of the things that, that she talks about in the book and that the choice of, of materials that come in uh, highlights is the importance of, of women being able to control their reproductive lives, that that is an important component to being able to truly be equal, to be able to control their careers, control their destinies. But she also, in the, the Ledbetter case, for example, which is a really important case involving ongoing pay discrimination, that was a case she cared very deeply about. She talks about how important it is for the law and these, you know, sort of theoretical decisions that the Supreme Court makes at a very high level, how important it is to connect the legal rules that the court adopts 
with the real world. And this is something that I think based on her experience, and you see this play out with other justices like Justice Sotomayor in particular, the life experiences that they bring to the court and to their judging really color how they think about how the law functions in the real world. And that too was an important legacy, I think, of Justice Ginsburg's judging. Again, I think we see it in some other judges, but it certainly comes through, for example, in her Ledbetter dissent, where she talks about to an all-male majority that is making it hard for women to bring uh, cumulative pay discrimination cases. She says, you don't understand what it's like to be the only woman in a workplace. The second you discover that you're the victim of discrimination, you're not going to scream it out. You're actually going to pause and you're going to think because if you complain right away, you're going to be labeled a troublemaker. And so we need to think about how the law intersects with the real world dynamics of the workplace, for example, and what it's like to be the only woman in a workplace, as Lily Ledbetter was, and as Justice Ginsburg was many times in her experience. So that too, I think, is, is it's a broader lesson. It's not one that's limited to gender discrimination. It's a lesson about how important it is to think about how the law connects, you know, the law that the Supreme Court hands down connects to the real world. But it played out very well um, and very, very sort of prominently in her gender discrimination decisions. You include in the book as well a, um, a speech that she gave at a naturalization ceremony. Why was that included? What did she say and what was the relevance of that to include it? That is such a special part of the book. I, I will say that was supposed to be the end of the book. Unfortunately, because she passed away, I did write an afterward after the fact. Um, but as I say in the first line of the afterward, this part of the book was not supposed to exist. The naturalization speech is magnificent. And I would urge people, if you can, to Google it and watch her deliver it because it is, it's, it's in a spectacular setting. It's at the National Archives and she just delivers it so beautifully. That and some of the other speeches that we included, they're all speeches that she had given in recent years that had not been published. And we included them because that speech in particular, but all of them show her at the end of her life in a very reflective um, sort of mindset. So she's thinking about her life and she's talking in another speech. She talks about Jewish women who had been role models for her when she was growing up. She talks about the influence of Justice Brandeis on her as an advocate and as a justice. But in this speech, she talks magnificently, beautifully about her family, about being the child of immigrants and how proud she was of that. And how much, I can't emphasize this enough, how much she loved her country, how much she loved that her family that had fled, you know, Nazi Germany had fled all that was happening to Jews in Europe, found a country that welcomed them and, and gave them opportunity to build a good life. And she celebrated in that speech and elsewhere that she was the daughter of an, of an immigrant and yet had somehow wound up on the Supreme Court. And that was something that she loved about our country. And I think her family's history gives you a window into why she loved this country so much, why she was so devoted to serving this country. In that speech, she also talks about uh, two more things. Each is special in, their, in its own right. So the first is when talking about the United States, she quotes de Tocqueville and she says, de Tocqueville was right, that we're not special because we're more enlightened than other countries. But what makes America special is that we face up to our faults and we address them and we try to learn from them and we try to do better. And that is a big component to what she did as, a, as an advocate and as a judge. She tried constantly to use her talents to make our society more just, more equal, and to more generally open up opportunities for everyone to live a full and happy life and, and to, as she liked to say, live up to their full human potential. But here's the really special part of that speech and why I, I particularly wanted it to be the last component to the book. She says to all of these individuals in the audience who've come from all over the world to join our citizenry, she says, now this is your constitution too. And 
this is a theme that goes back to her confirmation proceedings where she said, it's not up to the Supreme Court to protect our constitution. It's up to everybody. And so she says to the newest citizens of the United States in that speech, it's your constitution too. And the constitution calls on all of us to build a more perfect union. And now that's, that's something that I want you to pick up and join in the work of doing. And, and that's how she thought about the constitution, that it belongs to all of us. And so that, that is a really important message that we wanted the book to resonate with or, or to, for people who read the book to resonate with that part of the, of the theme of the book. We've got lots of questions coming in, so I'm going to encourage everybody to keep sending your questions, and then I'm going to get to them in just a moment. But I'm going to ask one last one before we start getting to those questions. Um, talk about her ethical barometer, her almost hardwiring for um, integrity, I guess, is the way that it seemed to those of us who are very much on the outside. Is that an uh, appropriate way to put it, would you say? Yes, absolutely. She she could not have been more hardwired for integrity. And um, I think it, it was tied into, again, that this just this idea that she believed she was in the service of others. I had her come multiple times to visit Berkeley Law and, and other law schools where I've taught. And I remember once when she came to speak directly with a group of my students in 2013, and a student asked her, what advice do you have for us? And she said, do something outside of yourself. Take your talents. If you're, if you're at an elite law school, take your talents and go make the world better for others. Don't just go make a paycheck and, and, and don't just go make money with your law degree. And that is how she lived her life. It was a life of service. And it was never, you know, cut corners. She, life wouldn't have afforded her the ability to cut corners because of all the discrimination she faced along the way, she always had to be that much better. She always had to work that much harder. But it was also that she never, she didn't seek out the office in order for self-promotion or to draw the limelight. It was all about service. And so I think part and parcel with that is a very strong ethical and moral compass of trying always to do the right thing and trying always to think outside of oneself and be in the service of others. Let me turn to some questions because we've got a number of them and I'm going to encourage everybody to keep sending your questions in. Um, and I'm going to combine it with a question that I had because I was surprised um, that that you your story about returning to work when you had a baby and you were nervous and you, you, you told her, you wrote a letter about your hesitancy. And um, I'm curious what, what, you said in your letter and what she responded to your letter and the advice that she gave. But I want to combine that with a, a question, which is this. Um, what was the best professional advice that Justice Ginsburg gave you and, and the best personal advice? Oh, she gave me a lot over the years. Um, one of the stories I would tell in answer to that question is the story of going back to work. I had my first child, my son, and then instead of going back to my regular law school, I decided in that first semester back to teaching to go visit at Harvard Law School, which was, um, you know, I had colleagues who said, you're crazy. Why are you doing it this particular semester? Uh, but I was, I was really nervous just more generally, and this would have been true no matter where I was going back to teach, about how I was now going to do this whole work-life balance that all these people have been talking about, but never seemed quite as consequential until I became a mother. And I wrote her a letter and I said, Justice, I'm, I'm really nervous about this and, and, uh, and a little scared about how I'm going to do it. And she wrote me back an email that was one line and it was as elegant as it was simple. She said, where there's a will, there's a way. And I, I have drawn on that so many times over the years because I think that's both a window into who she was and also phenomenal advice. This is, you know, hearkening back to what I was just saying, someone who had to go through law school with a toddler and a husband who was fighting cancer. This is someone who graduated tied for first in her class and couldn't get a job because she was a woman and she was Jewish and she was a mother. This is someone who at her first job as a law professor was paid less than her peers, not with her male peers, notwithstanding the Equal Pay Act, who had to hide her second pregnancy to make sure she got her next contract. And yet 
she winds up on the Supreme Court. Where there's a will, there's a way. And uh, so I've just always held that very close to my heart. She gave a, a lot of advice over the years. I think, you know, I could talk about a lot of different things, but but what I would say actually is the best response, I think, to the question is what she modeled for me. And I'm sorry, I'm kind of twisting the question, but she modeled for me lessons that I carry now into helping my students. And they're really important. So for example, when I went on the teaching market, she picked up the phone and called all of these law schools on my behalf. She didn't just wait for people to call her. She got out in front of it and did what she could to open up opportunities for me. And she did this for all of her law clerks. She was a champion for lifting up others, for promoting others, as I've said earlier, for lifting up other voices. And I think about that a lot when I think about my, my role as a professor and what I can do for my students. This is a great question. Um, so good. I wish I'd thought of it and I didn't. Um, what did she think of her nickname, the Notorious RBG? So, you know, it's funny. I did, I clerked for her. There, there are two camps of law clerks in the RBG family. Team RBG, as she called us. She actually had mugs made for her clerks that say Team RBG. Um, but I was in the pre-notorious camp, so I'm a little older. And then there are the post-notorious clerks. And I'm good friends with one of the clerks from the year that she became the notorious RBG. And she says they had to explain to her who the notorious B.I.G. was. She, I mean, she had no idea, which is not surprising. Not shocking. Not surprising. But then once they did, she really loved it. She thought, oh, well, we're both from Brooklyn. And she liked that people were celebrating that she spoke her truth. And she, uh, you know, she called out injustice where she saw it. And that's where I think the nickname originated from. That's why the law students who coined it. Um, did so. They they loved her Shelby County descent. They thought that she, you know, I think they started the expression, you can't spell truth without Ruth. And I, I mean, I can't say what she thought about all of that. But what I what I observed is that she she definitely, again, it was never about her. It wasn't about the limelight. It was about the ideas. It was about the principles and and what she cared about and what I think she embraced and loved about being the notorious RBG is it got people talking about those things and it got people talking about the work that was so important to her. And so for that reason, I think she embraced a lot of it because I think back to when I interviewed her at Berkeley and she did this on other occasions as well. When we sat down in our chairs, she had a tote bag and she made a point of putting it so that the side was facing the audience that said, I dissent. So she, she did embrace that. And I think, again, though, it was because it got people talking about the work and about what mattered to her. The other thing I would say on this is when we were working on the book, I, was, I visited her chambers and I looked at the pictures that she had around her office to get inspiration for what images we might include here. And we have a lot of images in the book that have not been published before. And I noticed she had, she had several pictures of her with little girls dressed up like her. And I, I don't think it was because she thought this is great. People are dressing up like me. I think that she loved that little girls were learning about, you could be a woman on the Supreme court and you could be a woman in your eighties and speak your mind and you can call out injustice when you see it. And that I think she really loved. And so I tried to make very few changes to the book after she passed away but I did include some images from when she came back to the Supreme Court and, and, and of course, an image of her lying in state as the first woman and the first Jew Jewish person to be so honored. And I also included an image that's my very favorite, and it's of a little girl dressed up as Supergirl. And she came to pay her respects to the justice and she's holding a rose and she's saluting. And I included that because that I think she would have loved that image. It's, it's this little girl who's inspired by her example and who I like to think is going to grow up and, and continue the work. Justice Ginsburg was a role model to so many people. Do you know who were some of her role models? She talks about that a lot over the course of her life. And um, I think that's a, that's a great question. I love that question. I haven't been asked that. Thank you. It, it, because as I've been saying, I think it was really important to her to honor the women who came before her. And she, she went out of her way 
to try and share credit. And that's another thing that she modeled so beautifully. So in the first brief that she filed in the Supreme Court, she listed as co-counsel Dorothy Kenyon and Pauli Murray, two incredible women lawyers who, who blazed a trail for her. And uh, they had not actively worked on the case. The case was Reed versus Reed. But Justice Ginsburg wanted to give them credit. She wanted to share the credit for getting out and, and in front of the idea that, hey, you know what? The Equal Protection Clause, actually, it says all persons are equal. It's written in a very general sense. And that should mean men and women too, not, not just all the races. And, and so she liked to give credit. So I think she would probably cite those two. In her Senate testimony, she also talked about, among others, Susan B. Anthony and Harriet Tubman. And she held them out and said, I stand on their shoulders. And she called them these brave people. She, um, and she talks about how they had dreams of equality way ahead of their time, but that they fought for it and made it easier for her to come along as hard as it was in the 1970s. They had at least done a lot of the hardest work already. And, and so she was very quick to give credit to others. And I, and I think that's, that's really special. Another thing, just one more point on this. When we were working on the book, uh, we included the Virginia Military Institute opinion, which is her only majority opinion in the in the book, and it's it was a very important opinion to her. She wanted me to make reference in the introduction to our book to the fact that Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman on the Supreme Court, had been offered that opinion and had said, no, Justice Ginsburg should have it. Justice Ginsburg wanted people to know that because she wanted to know how special a person Justice O'Connor is and how much she, how grateful she was to her for that. This next question is kind of personal, so if you don't want to answer it, it's okay. Uh, did Justice Ginsburg or Marty give you and your husband any marriage advice? <laughs> that's, uh, that's a great question. So yes, uh, the answer is yes. I, I will come at Do it. Do you dare to share it? <laughs> I, I will share it. So um, first I will say the best thing that they did was just model what a real partnership looks like. And um, both of us very much took that to heart. And, and um, I'm very, very grateful for their example. So that's the single most important thing I will say. Then I will say that she did share with me the advice that she received from her mother-in-law on her wedding day that she also has told publicly, she talks about it in the book. And, and, um, and yet I remember I called her, I said, do you have any advice? And, and she said, Oh, do I have advice? The best advice I ever received was from my mother-in-law who said in every good marriage, it pays to be a little deaf every now and then. And, um, the justice, as she tells the story, not only did her mother-in-law say this, the, the mother of the man she is marrying, but she put earplugs in, in the justice's hand in, at the time she did it. And later when the justice would tell this story publicly, she would always follow that by saying, um, and, and that advice has been really helpful with my colleagues as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, another thing about that is it shows that the justice did have a really good sense of humor and she had great timing also. Uh, this is a great question. Um, did you and Justice Ginsburg ever discuss what her first year of being a Supreme Court justice was like? That's a good question. I'm trying to think. I don't remember having a conversation per se about that, but I do remember, you know, I will say she wrote more opinions that year than she did any other year. So she was very active. What I remember is talking to her about being a judge more generally. And I remember her saying once that she absolutely loved being a judge and she loved being a judge on the DC circuit, which is one of the appellate courts below the Supreme court. And, and she was a judge there for 13 years before she went on the Supreme court. And she would say, if I'd never been put on the Supreme court, I would still love it. I absolutely loved being a judge. And, and it was a really special role. And I think, again, going back to what I was saying earlier, I think a big part of that was that it was it was about public service. It was about being in the service of this country that she loved so deeply. The last questions that I'm going to ask you are about her passing, um, just to warn you. Um, 
Do you remember your last conversation with her? Can you share it with us? Vividly. Um, it was, it was a difficult conversation now that I look back on it. Um, I didn't think it would be the last one we were supposed to talk actually the week that she passed away. And, and the fact that the call kept getting put off is how I, I started to worry that things were not going in the right direction. Um, but we were taught, we talked about the book. We talked about, um, how the term was winding up and, and it had gone late last year because of the COVID pandemic. And, um, I had prepared, I always, I always tried to, I always tried to make the justice laugh. And so I remember that I had, I had spent time before we talked trying to think of some funny stories that I could tell her. And I'm going to tell this because it'll help ground me before I tell the rest of the story. I, I had one, one among others, one funny story that I had prepared to tell her that was true. I said, justice, gosh, my, my kids, I can't get them to go to bed. They keep wanting to stay up later and later and later. And she said, why is that? And I said, well, I don't know. They're playing video games or something. You know, it's, it's crazy. It's the pandemic. Right. And I said, every time I yell up and I say, it's time for bed, they yell down, but mom, we're engaging in sibling bonding. And, and she just laughed her head off at that. And I was so pleased that I was able to make her laugh because I knew that she was, she was struggling a little bit. She was struggling a lot medically. Um, and then she asked about the kids. And this is the part that's hard to tell. She, she asked, how are they doing? And what is the prognosis for school in the fall? Are they going to be going back in person or are they going to be going back on their computers? And she went on to talk, you know, I answered her and, and we talked about that and she confessed or she conveyed that she was very worried about, about my kids, but more generally, and this is really important to highlight she conveyed that she was really concerned about children all over the world who were being so deeply affected uh, and, and in so many ways, mostly not good by the pandemic. And she was really, really concerned about what this would mean for the future. And I keep thinking back to that because, and I wrote about this in the book, I, I really think that's a window into who she was. And it's a very special window into where her mind was at the end of her life, because she was thinking about others. And she was also specifically thinking about kids and the future, the next generation. And I think that's a window into how she looked ahead, even in those, in those final days. And it's, it's a really special testament to who she was. She died on September 18th. And I'm curious, um, not that I want you to put words or tell us what she would have thought in the future. But I'm, I am curious as she was clearly thinking about, you know, the shape the world was in at that moment, worried about kids, worried about their place in a world that was seemingly very chaotic and not really secure at the moment. Um, talk to me a little bit about, about kind of her mindset at that point. I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's a couple of different things. I can, one, I can share what I knew from that period. And then two, I can speculate, um, which normally I don't do, but I'll, I'll do a little bit here. She, one, I, I can't emphasize enough. She was still at the top of her game right up until the end. So she was marking up drafts, things that I'd sent her for the book as extensively as she did 20 years earlier when I was her law clerk. And I have to smile about that because it's a little embarrassing, frankly, to admit that, that in 20 years, I couldn't turn around a draft that would be <laughs> a little less marked up. And the really, really embarrassing vignette to all of this is that because some of that was happening while she was in the hospital, her extraordinary assistants were printing out hard copies for her and bringing them to her. And they would print out my email and put it on top. And I would get back, you know, the pages for the book marked up but also my emails edited and marked up for mistakes. So um, I'm horrified to admit this publicly, but I, I think it's a window into she was going full steam right up until the end and, and just, you know, asking for work, send me more pages, send me more pages, even when she was in the hospital, just like when I was her law clerk. And that's just so inspiring and incredible. But she was also reflecting on how the pandemic was affecting things 
She was, as we were working on the book, as we've mentioned, thinking about the battles that she had lost that she hoped people would keep waging on voting rights, on gender equality, uh, on race, uh, a hugely important issue to her. And so I think all of that was very much on her mind. She was thinking about the future of our country. No one in the summer of 2020 was doing, in the fall of, of 2020 was doing anything else. She's no different. Um, I think she was troubled by what the pandemic had wrought with respect to women in the workforce. It's a really alarming um, you know, trend of what's happened with so many women leaving the workforce. This is what she worked for all of her life was full opportunities for people and the hope that um, families would receive support from both parents. So I think if she read some of the stories that I read about women having to leave the workforce because their male spouses wouldn't do the child rearing, she would be really upset about that. Um, the flip side is, I think if she had lived to see it, she would have been ecstatic to see Vice President Harris and to see a woman in that office. Um, I think that would have made her so proud and it would have made her, I, you know, I, again, I don't want to speak for her, but I, I truly believe she would have been so proud. And I think it would have made her think back to the work and the efforts of the women who came before her and their dreams. And she liked to talk about, and she gave, she gave a, a speech in 2019 where she talked about her optimism and her hope for the, for the future for this country. And whenever she talked about that, she talked about how much progress she had seen in her life. And when you think about her 87 years, just how much progress was accomplished, you can start to understand why she was optimistic and why she believed if we kept doing the work, we, we would get there. Uh, this is a great question. If you could describe Justice Ginsburg in three words, what would those three words be? Great question. Resilient. Service. And hero. Um, I love this last question because um, it brings us to an ending that is a very positive and forward-looking one. And I don't love ending in death, even though that is where the book ends. Her story and her legacy obviously does not end that way. <laughs> Professor Tyler, do you have advice for someone who is thinking about applying for law school? Go for it. <laughs> In a word, go for it. Um, a few more words. Lawyers have the ability, as her life well-lived underscores, to make a difference. And I tell my students this constantly, echoing advice that she gave to me and to countless others. Use your talents to make the world a little better place for others. And the tools of a law degree are really powerful tools. Another thing that I tell my students, I love this quote. Dr. King used to say, true power lies in the ability to achieve purpose. And if you think about what he's saying, he's saying that if you can set a goal and you can accomplish it, then you have power. Well, a law degree is power because it gives the person who has it the tools to, to go into court, to go to the legislature, to make arguments, to lobby, to rally people, to affect change. And her life is emblematic of just how massive a contribution you can make with a law degree at your disposal. And so to someone who is inspired by that, who wants to make a contribution, I say, go for it. Hopefully, whoever wrote that in, I'll have you in a class as one of my students. <laughs> I do think her life and her legacy has led a lot of people, but maybe women, young women specifically, to think about the impact you could have on the world if you can have an impact on the courts. I think that's very important. Um, I will say that it's not just about going to court. And I've said this for years to my students, and I think her life also bears this out. When she was in the 1970s at the ACLU Women's Rights Project, she was not just filing lawsuits. They were also pushing 
for legislation. They were pushing for Title IX. They pushed for the Pregnancy Discrimination Act, where the courts failed to recognize pregnancy discrimination as gender discrimination. And they pushed for the Equal Rights Amendment. They wanted the Constitution to include express uh, language saying that women are equal. So, um, you know, it's not just about what, what can you do in court. It's also where else can you use your talents to promote the, the, the vision of the country that you want. And this goes back to that final speech, the final piece of the book, where she says to the newest citizens of this country, you know, we, the people includes you and you have to take ownership of your constitution and you have to also do the work to build a more perfect union. A huge thank you to Professor Amanda Tyler. Again, uh, the book is called Justice, Justice Thou Shalt Pursue. You could see it over her shoulder. And I also want to point out Paving the Way, which I know you've committed to also promoting while you promote this book, because I know it was important to the justice. We encourage all of you to please pick up a copy of Justice Ginsburg and Professor Tyler's book at your local bookstore. If you want to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, uh, please visit commonwealthclub.org. I'm Soledad O'Brien. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you so much, Soledad. It was my honor and pleasure. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.